Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It's 7.07 in the Twin Cities. A steamy still 80 degrees. Well, a lot going on in the world. One of the things that happened at the G20 summit is that President Trump spoke with both the presidents of China and Japan, about the threat of North Korea. Uh, the president, uh, president Trump has signaled that he'd like to see uh, specifically China do more uh, in terms of you know, the trade that it has with North Korea, in terms of uh, putting that down as a carrot, uh, in terms of asking them to change or demanding that they change their behavior. Uh, meanwhile, in the past week, uh, North Korea has demonstrated an extraordinary ability in terms of its missile system, and it has fired an intercontinental uh, ballistic missile that most experts believe could, in fact, reach from Korea, could reach Alaska. Uh, so a lot a lot at stake here, a lot of concern about this rogue regime. I have talked with Gordon Chang before. He is the author of the book Nuclear Showdown. He is an expert on North Korea, and he is kind enough to join us again right now. Uh, Mr. Chang, thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you. All right, let me ask you, and, and your expertise is so welcomed here. First of all, your thoughts about, and you have written about uh, the North Korea's, North Korea's uh, military capabilities. What is your reaction, and, and how seriously should the U.S. take this particular test of an ICBM, an intercontinental ballistic missile, with the capabilities of reaching Alaska? Apparently, this test was successful. This test was successful, and it was successful in a number of different ways. First of all, it did test uh, an intercontinental ballistic missile, as you said. Also, they fired this missile very high in, into the sky, 1,740 miles, although it only went 580 miles downrange. What they were testing by such a high arc is the heat shielding. In other words, they wanted to make sure they could get their warhead back on Earth um, undamaged. And it, apparently they were successful in doing that. This is the second time in two months that they've tested their heat shielding and done so successfully. The first time was May 14th. The reason why this is so important is that it's not so much the range that the North Koreans need in order to have a real threat. It's the heat shielding. This is the last major technical barrier for them. It appears they're going to cross it, which means that within you know a year, maybe 18 months, they'll be able to put a nuke on top of a long-range missile that will be able to hit the lower 48 states. Obviously, um, that is that is something that, that is uh, of enormous concern right now. I have read uh, you know, some of the reactions, the concerns that if the U.S. were to take uh, unilateral action and, and try and strike North Korea, that the retaliation could be some kind of strike on the South in which there could be thousands of casualties. I mean, what... What are the problems here, and what about this effort of – certainly the president has said on, on Twitter, and we assume he probably said it to the president of China's face, uh, to try and get China to you know, try and put some kind of leverage on, the, on North Korea? 
Sure, and that was the subject of the meeting today between President Trump and President Xi Jinping. As um, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said to reporters on Air Force One coming back from Hamburg, they had a very direct conversation. And I can imagine, indeed, it must have been. Um, I think it's significant that it was Mnuchin speaking to reporters because last Thursday, the United States cut off a small fry Chinese bank from the global financial system. That was Bank of Dundong for money laundering. Well, a small bank is one thing. A large Chinese bank is another. Bank of China, one of China's big four banks, has also been involved in money laundering. We learned that in a U.N. report last year. And I'm sure the conversation went something along the lines of President Trump saying, look, we will unplug bigger Chinese banks from the global system for money laundering unless you, China, do something to cut the North Koreans off now. I'm sure the Chinese were outraged by that. But nonetheless, um, we have to stop um, criminal Chinese behavior because whatever we think our North Korean policy should be, whatever we think our China policy should be, the president of the United States has an obligation to uphold U.S. law, and Chinese banks have been violating money laundering statutes left, right, and center. And they have to be doing that with the knowledge of the Chinese government. Uh, obviously. Um, and the reason is you've got, um, first of all, these are state institutions. Um, Beijing knows about all of their sensitive relationships, especially their relationship with North Korea. And Beijing can't run a police state and then deny what's going on inside deny knowledge of what's going on inside that state, especially when state institutions are involved. Um, So these are directions coming from the top of the Chinese political system. And this gets even worse because we know that the Chinese have been supplying equipment and almost certainly they've been supplying technology to North Korea's ballistic missile program. In other words, the Chinese have been weaponizing North Korea, giving them the capability to harm the United States. And so, you know, and is that is that under the table or just in plain broad daylight? Uh, it's under the table. Um, at least the Chinese want it to be, but um, there's a lot of that we have learned. Uh, so, for instance, this missile that was tested July 4th that you talked about, but it, it's carried on a Chinese transporter erector launcher. That makes the missile mobile, which makes it hard to find, which makes it difficult to destroy before launch. So really what the Chinese have been doing is making North Korea a real threat to the United States. And we talk about China. And what's in it for China? I mean, other than a lot of money. Well, there's this little bit of money. I don't think that there's that much. Um, But what I think the Chinese are doing is um, they want to harm the United States, and they found a way to do it, which is North Korea. Also, um, whenever North Korea does something provocative, like launch a missile or detonate a nuclear device – we send our secretary of state or some some other high envoy to Beijing to plead for Beijing's cooperation. They extract concessions from us. We don't talk about things that are important to Americans, such as predatory trade practices, cyber attacks on American networks, South China Sea, Taiwan, human rights, you name it. So in the short term, there's a very important dynamic for Beijing. But I think long term is that they see the U.S. as their primary strategic adversary, And they are willing to arm countries to kill Americans. And we need to understand that. And that's something that's uh, a a sobering reality. Uh, And and this is something uh, Gordon Chang, author of Nuclear Showdown, expert on North Korea. Um, What uh, in, in terms of China, though, how dependent is North Korea on trade with China? Uh, 
North Korea would not exist without China. So, for instance, more than 90% of North Korea's external trade is with China. China supplies more than 90% of its crude oil, much of it on concessionary terms. China supplies at least a third and maybe as much as 45% of North Korea's food. More than half of foreign investment into China, into North Korea, comes from China. You just go down the line. Uh, China has overwhelming leverage on North Korea. Um, but it's not only um, economics. It's also diplomatic support that Beijing gives to the North Koreans. And there's one other thing that we don't talk about, and that is Beijing supplies confidence to regime elements that they are safe from the United States and the rest of the international community. So that means that they have the will in Pyongyang to stand up to the U.S. because they know that China has their back. And so this is a North Korea, as they say, that could neither bark nor bite without Beijing. And in terms of Beijing's response, what do you think it's going to be? I think the Chinese, well, they've already, uh, the Trump administration a week ago um, imposed a number of costs on on, uh, China. And the Chinese were, as they told us, they were outraged, angered, irritated, all the rest of it. Um, Yeah, they will be very upset. But on the other hand, we have overwhelming leverage over China because we have an economy that in reality is twice the size of China's. We do not have an economy that is geared to selling things to China, but China has an economy geared to selling things to us. And we're a trade deficit country when it comes to China. In 2016, our goods and services trade deficit was $309.8 billion. And in trade wars, trade deficit countries don't worry. Trade surplus countries do. We Americans should know that because in the 1930s, we were the world's trade surplus country. We got hurt more than any other country in the Great Depression. So if we have political will, and we don't, but if we had the political will, we could push the Chinese to do the things that we want on North Korea. And indeed, if President Trump had um, the will, I think what he would have done to Xi Jinping today was just tell Xi Jinping what he was going to do, say that this was not a negotiation, and just spell out the consequences to Beijing, which could very well be the end of the communist state if the United States decided to get rid of um, the Communist Party. Um, But unfortunately, we don't understand the nature of of our strength like we didn't understand the nature of our strength uh, during the Carter years. So this is something where we Americans have got to understand that we do have leverage. But even apart from that, we got to understand that the North Koreans pose a threat to the United States that is something that we have not seen in a very long time. And we need to deal with North Korea because we need to protect the American homeland. All right. I'm chatting with Gordon Chang. He's the author of Nuclear Showdown. He is an expert on North Korea. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to ask him about the humanitarian crisis, uh, a crisis that I was not entirely aware of. I've been doing some research in preparation for an interview I'm doing on the TV side tomorrow about a local woman who's trying to organize help for North Korean refugees. But I want to ask him about the uh, humanitarian crisis there because uh, it, it really appears to be horrific. So keep it here. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. Um, Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. My guest, Gordon Chang, is the author of Nuclear Showdown. Uh, I want to switch gears here to talk about the humanitarian crisis uh, and the situation in North Korea. Uh, I did not realize how many people are are escaping North Korea or certainly attempting to escape North Korea and, and how many refugees there are actually in China and South Korea who have fled North Korea. Uh, how big an issue is this? 
Well, it's an enormous issue, um, not for South Korea, not for China, not for the United States, but certainly for North Korea, because what it does is it creates a, a, a um, image of instability. It um, makes the regime insecure. And indeed, it tars North Korea's image around the world. So the regime sees this as a mortal threat, although um, the the, the um, dispersion of people who are unhappy with North Korea actually in some ways strengthens the regime because it purges um, the state of people who are dissidents or otherwise unhappy. But nonetheless, um, the North Korean state finds this to be a mortal threat because they're worried about the way the world perceives them. And clearly, defectors and refugees um, color our perception of North Korea. In terms of uh, those that are escaping and making their way to China, of which there are a number, refugees from North Korea, uh, is is North is China, if they catch them, is China sending them back to North Korea? Uh, China sends um, everyone back to North Korea, um, even though China is a signatory to a convention on refugees, which requires China to determine whether they are uh, economic refugees, in which case they can send them back, or whether these are people who fear political persecution when and China has an obligation to protect them. But China completely uh, ignores its obligations in this regard. And indeed, um, we, my wife and I were in Seoul about a week and a half ago, and we were talking to a Christian missionary who runs one of these large networks of uh, protect refugees, um, North Korean refugees and defectors. And he was telling me and my wife that essentially we're seeing um, China intensified campaign um, to repatriate refugees to North Korea. And this has been going on for several months now. Okay. So in other words, if, if, if they, you know, somebody escapes North Korea and they make it to China and they're caught by the Chinese authorities, they'll be sent back to North Korea. And what is their fate if they're sent back to North Korea? It, it really depends. Um, you know, most people are, are sent into a camp of some sort, and, and this is um, a horrific experience, and, and some are, are, are put to death. If a woman is returned and she is pregnant, there will be a forced abortion because um, the North Koreans are worried about Chinese blood, quote-unquote, polluting um, the Korean um, bloodlines. Um, so this is, again, just some of the most horrific practices, and China, of course, condones this. Is there any pressure for the U.S.? Is, has the U.S. taken no step on, on that issue? Uh, we take um, very little. Uh, we have a, a, a North Korean, um, uh, an envoy on North Korean human rights, but we um, place very little emphasis on uh, promoting human rights in North Korea. And I think that this is a mistake. Um, we in democracies don't understand the importance of symbols for of legitimacy of a government because our government is inherently legitimate. It, it's elected, um, but autocrats everywhere, including in, in the Kim regime, uh, are very insecure. And so, this whole issue of human rights, if raised, will tar the image of a regime, and they will find it to be a mortal threat. So we don't understand how powerful this is. And, you know, we always think, well, you know, we're not concerned about North Korean people. We're concerned about um, missiles, nuclear weapons, all the rest of it. But nonetheless, if we want to stop their weapons programs, one of the ways to do that is to undermine the regime. And one of the best ways to undermine a regime 
is a campaign to bring information to the North Korean people and to promote human rights of North Koreans. But is there any, has the U.S. at any point pressured the Chinese to not respond in this way, returning returning North Korean refugees to what is most likely certain death or torture? Yeah, um, we put little pressure on the Chinese in this regard. I mean, we don't put very, uh, at least up until last week, um, we put almost no pressure on the Chinese on anything. Um, You know, because American policies since the beginning of the administration of George W. Bush has really been to promote the integration of China into the international system. We place much more emphasis and priority on that than disarming North Korea. And indeed, uh, our idea of working with China is to try to be cooperative and to be friendly in the hope that they will return um, the favor, which they don't. Um, And what the Trump administration did last week was a series of punishments on North Korea. They were small. Um, Basically, they were signals to Beijing. And I'm sure that what President Trump did today in his meeting with his Chinese counterpart was to say that the U.S. can amp up the pressure. Um, But indeed, um, this is a historic shift in American policy because we're starting to view uh, costs on China as maybe the only way to get Beijing's cooperation. I'm not sure that it's going to work. But on the other hand, it is the only approach that we have not tried over the course of three decades. And everything else that we have tried has completely, utterly failed. So we have an obligation to try this one last approach. And certainly if they are that de- – the North Koreans are that dependent on, on trade with China uh, to the degree to which you are saying they are, uh, I mean that is significant in and of itself. Well, absolutely. Um, I mean the United States has a, um, a problem because not only do we have to get the Chinese out of supporting the North Koreans, we've also got to get the Russians because the, the Russians can backfill. Um, in other words, you know, if the Chinese withdraw support, the Russians could increase support, which is something Putin would want to do just to needle the United States. Also, there is a new president in South Korea, Moon Jae-in, elected on May 9th, who is uh, very much supportive of the North Korean regime. And so President Trump um, last week, in some brilliant tactical diplomacy, actually boxed in, boxed in the South Korean president and prevented him from defecting to North Korea, in a sense. But this is an extremely complex situation for the United States. It's not easy, but the stakes are extremely high because the North Koreans, as I mentioned, are going to soon be able to hold U.S. cities at ransom. Can can you explain what what you view exactly what Mr. Trump did that you feel was such a brilliant move in terms of the strategy towards the president of South Korea? Yeah. In a, in, a, in a space of a week, he did this. He invited and gave a very warm welcome to the Indian prime minister, who is now involved in an extremely nasty border dispute with the Chinese. This was a signal that the United States was going to work more closely with India. Um, on the following Tuesday, the State Department um, dropped China into its worst category in its annual trafficking of persons report. We didn't give China a waiver. Um, the Be- Beijing was really upset about that. Thursday human trafficking. La- human trafficking. Yeah. Thursday of last week, uh, two things occurred. First of all, the United States Treasury um, declared the Bank of Dundong a primary money laundering concern and essentially severed it from the global financial system. And also on Thursday, the White House notified Congress of its intention to sell $1.42 billion of arms to Taiwan. And then on the Sunday... Um, There was a freedom of navigation operation in the South China Sea, in other words, challenging China's excessive maritime claims. 
Beijing was extremely upset about that as well. All of these events took place within seven days. Can't be a coincidence that there has been this change in American policy. And I think what's happened is that the Chinese understand right now that the U.S. is pivoting, moving away from providing carrots and starting to use sticks. All right. Well, Gordon Chang, uh, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for helping us sort out this this very difficult and increasingly problematic uh, nation of North Korea, especially in light of that ICBM successful test. Thank you so much for your time this evening, sir. Thank you. Absolutely. That is Gordon Chang. He is the author of the book Nuclear Showdown, uh, an expert on North Korea. To talk to him to get his insights on what the U.S. might consider doing in order to contain this rogue regime. All right, folks, it is 729 in the Twin Cities, as May Murphy with you until 9 o'clock. Um, uh, we're going to take a break, give you some weather. It's pretty pretty steamy out right now, um, 80 degrees right now at this moment. But uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about tick-borne illnesses. Not something very pleasant, but there's actually a, a new tick-borne disease in Minnesota that uh, people are very worried about. And we're There are also some older ones that people are very worried about as well. So keep it right here. You are listening to News Radio 830 WC. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. It is 7.33 in the Twin Cities, almost 7.34. Interesting chatting with Gordon Chang about the situation in North Korea. Uh, Tomorrow at 10.30 a.m. on WCCO Television, uh, I will have a live guest, a woman who – actually, she's a former University of Minnesota regent, a successful businesswoman who has formed a nonprofit to help refugees in North Korea. Her family was separated by the war – uh, she has not seen members of her family. Well, she went almost 40 years without seeing them. Then she saw them in 1990. Now she doesn't know if they are – some of them are still alive inside North Korea. And she's not alone. That is that is the most common um, situation for people who have families divided. And millions of, of Koreans do have uh, divisions or family members. They don't know where they are or how they are doing. So we will have her interview at 10.30 a.m. on WCCO television. Well, this half hour, we're going to talk about something that's kind of makes a lot of people squeamish, ticks. I know it's, you know, one of the things that you got to deal with if you're going to the cabin or going outside in the summer in Minnesota and Wisconsin, certainly many, many other other states. Uh, tick-borne illnesses, uh, ticks are something that you do have to be very careful of. Now there's an indication that there is a new tick-borne illness that has popped up in both Minnesota and Wisconsin, that people need to be careful about. Joining me right now is a professor, and I hope I'm saying this correctly, Dr. Uli Munderlo, the professor of entomology at the University of Minnesota. Uh, Dr. Munderlo, did I say your name correctly? Yeah, perfectly. I recognize it. Okay, great. Well, thank you. Well, I hope to do better than that. I mean, I, I uh, want to make sure that I get it correctly. But um, Dr. Mandela, first of all, um, you are an entomologist, so you study ticks. Let me ask you, because, you know, you, you know, I always tell my kids, you know, well, spiders, they're, they're, they're good. You know, they, 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 you know, get other bugs and they provide, you know, they they're provide good in the world. Do ticks, is there anything good about ticks? Yeah, they actually, uh, first of all, I'm not an entomologist. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've grown into the job, let me say, so I'm trained as a veterinarian. Veterinarian, okay, I'm sorry. I was My apologies from here. that angle, no problem at all. <laughs> from that angle, I was always interested in disease agents transmitted by ticks. So because... coming back to what is good about ticks, and I would um, uh, tap into the knowledge 
store of a colleague of mine who is a professor at Oxford University in UK, and he has looked at the um, secretions from the salivary glands of ticks. And one thing um, for people who actually are able to dissect ticks or open them up and look inside, what they'll notice uh, is that um, salivary glands are very large in ticks and they're very complex. Um, imagine a uh, bunch of grapes. Mm -hmm. Each uh, berry of the grape is an individual unit that consists of several different cell types and uh, makes the secretion of saliva uh, that, if you think of the stem of that grape, that joins larger and larger and larger stems. And in the end, there's just one stem, right? Yes. And that would be the main salivary duct that empties into the, uh, like the esophagus, you could say, mm -hmm. um, the mouth part, the oral cavity of the tick. And that's what the tick spits into its victim. And uh, the saliva of ticks uh, contains like about a thousand different components. And each of these, uh, they, they're staged basically. Uh, early on, there's a certain set that's made and uh, secreted into the host. And then that changes midway. And again, at the end, there's a different composition. And so all of this taken together uh, helps the tick uh, reduce the itch. You know, most people note when they pull the tick off, then that's when it starts to itch. But when the tick bites you, Right. You don't feel anything. So they have anesthetics in there. They have anti-itch components. They have um, components that help the blood flow. And they have many components. They have components that help the blood flow of their victims? Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, really? to, the wound, to the bite wound, you know. <laughs> so the victim is a juicier experience for the tick. So the tick uh, doesn't want the blood to clot because then that would, of course, clog up its mouth parts. So the blood has to be anticoagulated, and the tick has anticoagulants in its saliva, and also anti-inflammatory um, substances, many different ones. And that um, is the interest of uh, my colleague. There are many of these substances, when they are made uh, artificially, can actually help people who have uh, diseases uh, like clotting problems or diseases where they have too much inflammation um, or respond oh. too vigorously to, you know, like allergy sufferers. Uh, they could be helped by many of the, the components that ticks have in wow. their saliva. So. So, so, so people are actually studying ticks yeah. to see if they can, they can perhaps come up with anti-clotting oh, measures oh, yeah. or, or just... Um, yeah, That's very also, interesting. Yeah, there's, for example, they have histamine binding proteins, which the histamines are proteins that our body makes when, when we are allergic. And so when humans and also animals are repeatedly bitten by ticks, you know, we build up an, a response to them. And so these um, uh, ticks, they neutralize that allergic response so that they themselves can continue feeding. Otherwise, the host would be itching terribly and the skin would become inflamed and that's all not good for the blood meal experience of the tick. Wow. Okay. And, and let, let me ask you, are, are there ticks? Does every, uh, you know, continent have ticks or is it just, you know... Yeah, basically every continent except Antarctica. <laughs> has, has ticks. Okay. Except for where the seabirds nest, you know, they actually have... Uh, 
ticks that are specific for them, but that's at the very rim uh, where where the seabirds are nesting, and they are parasites often of the nestlings. Wow. Okay. So so it, it's not just here in the U.S. Everybody's got ticks except for Antarctica. It's sort of like that. Yeah. That, that in Antarctica, Antarctica, they are kind of concentrated on the rim, but not, of course, in the interior where that's it's just too cold for them. Okay. And um, Dr. Uli Munderloh is a professor. She's a veterinarian at the University of Minnesota. And uh, obviously ticks certainly can affect mm-hmm. uh, pets as well and, and oh, yeah. animals as well. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you, what, what changes are – because the, the new disease, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this correctly, is ehrlichiosis. Yeah, that's uh, – ehrlichiosis is named actually after a German microbiologist who died a long time ago. And uh, so anyhow – um, there is more than one type of ehrlichiosis in the U.S., but only one in Minnesota. Fortunately for us, the newly discovered one is really very, very mild. I'm sure there are people who've had it and never know, knew that they actually had the illness because it just you know, felt ill for a few days and then they got better. It's very mild, a very mild disease. Uh, as opposed to a different type of ehrlichiosis that is transmitted by a different tick further in the south called the lone star tick. You know, the one that people always link to the, the meat allergy also. Right. Uh, and so anyhow, that tick transmits a, a um, uh, ehrlichiosis agent that's called Ehrlichia chaffiensis after a military camp called Fort Chaffee in Arkansas. And that is a really nasty disease, and it's actually quite similar to uh, what here in Minnesota is transmitted by the deer ticks or black-legged ticks, and it's right. called human anaplasmosis. Okay. Is, it, is it because our climate is becoming warmer that we're seeing these ticks that, that carry ehrlichiosis? Er, well, but one thing we can clearly see, say, you know, uh, we can clearly say that ticks, are spreading definitely in Minnesota, and the incidence of diseases transmitted by ticks is definitely going up. We are really lucky here in Minnesota, the Department of Health, and particularly Dr. Dave Neitzel, uh, they are very vigilant about tick-borne diseases and have had a good program going, uh, reporting, and also um, collecting information and compiling the information, analyzing it for longer than most other states. And maybe that's not surprising because actually Minnesota has the largest number of uh, this human anaplasmosis of any state and also of, you may have heard, uh, this virus that's transmitted that's called Povasan or deatic virus. We have right. more of that than uh, any other state in the United States. Really? No, I didn't know that it was that prevalent. Going back to the ehrlichiosis, I know that you said that, that the one that's been discovered here is the milder version. Right. I do want to ask you about this one, though, because you mentioned it, because it just sounds so bizarre, uh, that is transmitted by the Lone Star uh, uh, tick, and, and it's, it, it involves an allergy to meat. Mm-hmm. Can, can you explain what, what that is and, and why it's more serious? I know you're saying that it's not here, but I think people might might have heard something about that because it just sounds so bizarre. Yeah, it is bizarre, and we actually do not know really all the ins and outs of it. Uh, it is, uh, has something to do with proteins, um, have um, other bits and pieces attached to them to make them functional. There are sugars or carbohydrates, and it has to do with, with those. They can be um, involved in, in allergies and allergic reactions. But when you look, you know, uh, each um, G- 
gene in the in the genome of a tick that uh, is of the lone star tick has been not so well investigated, but there is quite a bit of knowledge, and we do not see a gene that could be making uh, these modifications um, to the protein that we see in this meat okay. allergy. So it's quite mysterious, um, I but, know. But you, you literally get an allergy to meat? Uh, people think it's it's connected to ticks, whether it's coincidental, whether the tick maybe changes the responsiveness of the human to the meat. Uh, that seems a possibility. Wow. It seems unlikely that the tick is directly responsible for that. Okay. But we, like... I said, you know, we have to do a lot more research uh, into this before we really know what wow. the problem okay. is. And certainly, it's a, it's, I'm not downplaying it. You know, I'm not saying it's not true that these people become allergic. It's just we, we don't know enough about the causes. Gosh, okay, all right. And, and so what what are the symptoms of, of the kind of ehrlichiosis that you could get here? You say it's very mild, like it, yes. you might have a little cold or something like or feel yeah, like a like slight fever. I would famously say a flu-like illness, so people have a headache and they get a mild fever. Um, that's pretty much it. Um, and because people in Minnesota, I think they're very sensitive to the possibility of Lyme disease and human anaplasmosis, which when you neglect those, they can be nasty. And so when in summer they do feel unwell and they know they've been in tick country, then they will usually go to a physician, which is an excellent idea. Um, And so many of the samples that uh, doctors in Minnesota take, blood samples for testing, go to the Mayo Clinic, um, and they have developed this assay to detect this particular disease agent um, and uh, outside of that, you know, people have previously, before the Mayo Clinic people, that particularly Dr. Bobby Pritt, uh, before they developed a test to discover this disease agent in the blood samples, people have always thought that we may have sporadic cases of the elicosis that occurs in the South, like Tennessee mm-hmm. and uh, actually parts of New York, you know, that that tick is spreading north as well, and it's already well into Iowa. It's not established here yet, but you know, there's no okay. reason why it won't be coming pretty soon. So, okay. so um, it's, it's like a fever, um, maybe nausea, uh, you know, just plain not feeling well. Um, but usually people get over it. All right. Well, listen, we're chatting with Dr. Uli Munderloh. She's a veterinarian at the uh, University of Minnesota. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I really want to talk about, because uh, Dr. Munderloh says that, that we have the highest diseases of, of deer tick uh, illnesses. Obviously, Lyme disease is a terrible problem. I know people who have been desperately sidelined by this ailment. I know it can also be devastating for pets, but we're going to ask Dr. Munderloh what to watch for. Why is it, can it be so devastating? What should you do if you suspect that either you or a loved one or, or one of your animals has uh, been bitten by a deer tick? So keep it right here. You're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. It's that time of year. It is tick season. Dr. Uli Munderloh is a professor uh, of veterinary uh, medicine at the University of Minnesota, and she is joining us right now to talk about ticks. Uh, you mentioned that Minnesota is actually number one for deer tick illnesses. Is that correct? No, I, I said that we have more cases of 
certain disease agents transmitted by ticks, okay. and that's the human, human anaplasmosis agent and also the Powassan virus encephalitis. And I just want to make sure I am trained as a veterinarian, but I'm working in the Department of Entomology because okay. uh, I find ticks among the most interesting organisms to study. All right. Well, and, and you, you got fascinating information. All right. Well, let me ask you, why, why do we have a lot of, of deer tick problems here? I mean, are there just more deer ticks? Um, maybe not more. I mean, certainly out east, like Connecticut and places like that, have the higher incidence of Lyme disease. And uh, Lyme, Connecticut, is yeah, apparently yeah, what that's a lovely place. I've been there, but yeah, that's where it was discovered. Certainly, um, why is it? I think Minnesota has the habitat that is just right for the hosts that the ticks love to feed on, and that also be um, are carriers of the disease agents, particularly, of course, small rodents, including. Uh, the white-footed mouse, but also we know that in Minnesota it's likely that um, the um, now chipmunks play a role uh, that's probably a more prominent role than they play, for example, in, on the East Coast. So blame it on the chipmunks? Yeah, not blame, blame it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? Um, so, so, <laughs> so the chip themselves, right? <laughs> so the chipmunks carries the, the so the ticks. Do they just kind of? Yeah, they carry the ticks. Uh, chipmunks live several years as opposed to a little white-footed mouse. If they live a year or so, that's uh, an old white-footed mouse. So many of them don't even make it through the winter, whereas chipmunks uh, survive through the several winters. And they are uh, heavily infected with uh, Lyme disease agent and also the human anaplasmosis agent. Wow, okay. And the ticks can clearly, uh, the, the larvae, the first... Um, stage of tick that crawls out of the egg is called a larva, and they are the ones that pick up the, the disease agents from the small rodents, from mice and, and chipmunks, and also uh, meadow voles, and a lot of other small rodents are involved in this. Wow, okay. What What is the number, in all cases, if you're bitten by a deer tick, do you have that, because um, I've seen this, it almost looks like the target bullseye, uh, that round circle. Yeah. Is that always the case or just no, sometimes the a, case? It's about, I think it's about le- less than half. Like oh, really? Okay. So percent of uh, people develop that. And the reason why it uh, arises at usually uh, at the tick bite site, but not only, is because the tick does not, unlike, you know, it does not tap a blood vessel directly. It spits into your skin and the saliva of the tick contains enzymes that destroys and digests actually the skin and makes what we call a feeding cavity. And then uh, the spirochetes get into that cavity and they are motile. They can wriggle like a corkscrew type movement and they migrate out into the skin surrounding the tick bite site. And wherever they are actively moving in a you know, centrifugal pattern, that's where the skin reacts wow. with inflammation and looks red. And so uh, where they have left the tick bite site, that's where there is no more inflammation. And so that's where you have okay. the clearing. And if you took like a skin biopsy from the red part, you could actually uh, culture those Borrelia spirochetes um, or detect their DNA or their presence in, in 
some way. Wow. Whereas if you took a biopsy from the pale part, you wouldn't find them there anymore. Right. And so once they are migrating out into the skin, then they dive down and invade uh, other organs, and then they can also be spread around the body with the blood system. And some people get uh, secondary um, bullseye rashes in parts of the skin where the tick has never bitten. Okay. And well, what is it if you... Get treatment. I mean, if you have that, should you get treatment right away? Yes, definitely. As soon as you know that you've, I mean, obviously most people will definitely feel really sick after about a week or two weeks, depending on right. uh, how many spirochetes I'm sure uh, has to do with that, what we call dosage, uh, were injected in, into the human. And so they, they do get fever. They feel really very sick and ill and just unwell, and if you you know know that you've been in an area where there have been where there could be ticks, you should clearly immediately consult um, your family doctor or any physician in the area. And and does it help if you get treatment right away? Does that yes, you should get treatment as soon as possible. That's very important. And also, I would say that when people not about half or so, maybe more of people do not even know that they've been bitten by a tick. Wow, but okay. if you have been bitten by a tick and you saw the tick, you know, you you should pull it off like they say carefully with tweezers pulling up. Don't use a mat or anything like that. Yeah. But uh, if you can get a hold of this what we call the first aid antibiotic that you can buy at most drugstores, it's a good idea to apply that. You can even buy it uh, on a band-aid already or as a, you know, salve yeah. from a tube because um, ticks also often don't have very clean mouth parts. They don't brush right. their teeth every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is good advice. So sometimes, you know, you I... could get a secondary infection. It might even perhaps kill off the spirochetes okay. while they are still in the skin. Well, listen, so. Dr. Uli Munderlo, thank you so much. Um, uh, you obviously are clearly an expert in, in this field, and uh, thank you so much for all of your advice this evening. You're welcome. Okay. All right, and I know that there aren't ticks in the studio, but I swear to God, I feel like that they're like creepy, creepy, crawling all over me. All right, folks, listen to that advice. Keep it here, News Radio eight three zero. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app, the biggest sports radio stations in the country, providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams, all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives. Streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 